0: This is Conquering Columbus.
1: Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your show editor and mixer, Andy. On today's show, Josh sits down with Gus Hashim, the co-founder of Tsetra, a company focused on serving individuals who lack access to traditional financial solutions. Early on in the conversation, Gus defines Tsetra's target customer and how they implement their platform with vendors to serve those customers.
2: Our vendors are the carriers in the U.S. They are in the prepaid wireless side of the business early on. And the customer is the underbank that you mentioned, the 84 million people that are in the U.S. that we serve today with our platform. And the reason why they're called underbanked is because their access to the banking system is very limited or their method of accessing it might be too expensive for them to actually do their business, to do the same functions that we would do as a normal business function you know, like getting a loan, running a credit card, making a payment for your cell phone, making a, a wallet payment for your transportation. Those transactions are more expensive for the underbanked. So we give them a method to do the process with no fees. The transaction happens on our platform. And it's built in, our cost is built in directly with the carrier that we get the the product from.
1: Next, he speaks about their partnerships and the importance of keeping those relationships healthy.
2: Our typical merchant is like Mike's Wireless or Josh's Wireless, or uh, a multi-branded store that has multi-brands of wireless carriers in the US under the same belt, mom and pop convenience stores. Those are our customers, those are our merchants today. They're not TTCetra or VitaPay owned, but VitaPay service that location. And we build partnerships with these locations into what we can say is a healthy ecosystem to serve the products to the end customer. Josh and
1: Gus wrap up the conversation, talking about the company's financial independence and the strategies they implement to maintain that status.
2: We are till today independent on ourselves. There's quite a bit of cash management that we have to do to figure out how to do, how to grow this way. And that's one of the reasons that you don't see us, like we didn't grow into a thousand employees overnight. We're at 170 employees, 30, 40 of them are actually traveling agents. They service different markets and we have customers. So the way we grew helped us grow organic than to keep borrowing from uh, venture capitals and so forth. We still keep investing in the business and that helps the business grow as it is.
1: All right. Hope you enjoy the episode.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Today end the show, we got Gus Hashem. Gus is the co founder of Tsetra, a company focused on solving the challenges of a massive problem in the U.S., serving the 84 million people who lack access to bank accounts or other traditional financial products and services. These underbanked individuals still need to interact with an increasingly digital world, and that is where TCETRA steps in. They offer retail partners products and services for converting cash payments into secure, cashless transactions, helping them better serve customers that lack traditional banking solutions. Excited to have Gus on the show today to talk about his story and the story of TCETRA. Welcome, to Conquering Columbus, Gus.
2: Thanks, Josh, and uh, thanks for making the time for me.
3: So I appreciate you jumping on. And usually, where we'll start is to gain a little bit of background on our guests before we dive mm-hmm. too much into the company and everything happening today and just hear about where you grew up and milestones that kind of led along your way to your early careers.
2: So I come from an immigrant family.
3: And where was your family originally from? Uh, Jordan. Your parents came over here? Or their grandparents? No, I'm
2: actually first generation.
3: And how old were you when that happened?
2: Uh, 17, 18. So that was early on.
3: And for an entrepreneur, there's something interesting about, I mean, I, I'd be curious, I don't know the stat, but the amount of entrepreneurs in the U.S. that are immigrants and that correlation, I got to imagine, is coming over here and you're kind of starting from nothing most of the time, Correct. to some extent. Mm-hmm. So not betting on yourself, it's like, what are you, what are you going to do? End with nothing again? You know, you really don't have much of a choice. So when you were here in the early days, I mean, you chose to go to college, and you were still young enough. Correct. What was that experience like?
2: Well, I, uh, I kept my focus on. I really wanted to complete my college degree. I liked what the field that I was going into, and the, uh, the focus was there, and I wanted to drive it all the way through. So I kept my focus on. My degree in MIS that I wanted to go to college for uh, Bowling Green State University was one of the best schools in Ohio and uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to follow my dream all the way through from a college graduation into an entrepreneurship side of the business.
3: So you finish up undergrad and you studied MIS uh, management information systems correct. Is that right? Are you looking at different job opportunities at that point or do you jump right into entrepreneurship?
2: So straight out of college, EDS was my first uh, gig, uh, which is one of the big six in the U.S. at that point in time. It's not known as EDS anymore. It's uh, HP. HP bought EDS and converted it into what it is today. So EDS was based out of Columbus and I started working for them early on in my career. They put me on a few consulting opportunities and uh, and one thing led to another and I joined the dot-com industry after that. From there, I realized that I was missing something. And what I was missing was the self-fulfilling need of saying, hey, I'm contributing to a bottom line of a business. So in a large company, sometimes you don't feel it because you're like a number. You're one of 100,000 employees in the the ecosystem. So what I wanted to do is do something different. I wanted to actually get to the point of saying, I want to contribute to a company, a small company, a large company, but then I want to make a difference in that company. So I took what I learned in the dot com and the EDS world, and I started applying it on a smaller organizations. And one thing led to another, and mm-hmm. TCEtra was born. And 15 years ago, with my co-founders and myself, we were friends at the beginning, and we thought there is a need. We were in the industry from a wireless point of view. We were in the wireless industry at that time. We found that there is an opportunity for us to serve the underbanked that you mentioned in the introduction, and the TCEtra can serve the underbanked in digitizing the transaction that needs to happen with a carrier. So we were able to spin up a product and launch the the company from there.
3: So you've been working how many years professionally before you jumped into entrepreneurship?
2: Well, I'm a 94 graduate, so I'm a little bit older than you are probably. And uh, T-Cetra is in its 15th year now. So that tells you where things are.
3: Yeah, so maybe maybe you're working for, for some reason, subtracting years is like, uh, I think my degree is in math, but sometimes <laughs> I question myself, is like difficult for me. So maybe we're working for 10, 12, 13 years at that point or somewhere
2: around there. Prior to, uh, prior to EDS, yeah. You, know.
3: you and your friends identify this problem. Do you remember identifying the problem and realizing like, okay, this is a big enough problem worth solving?
2: Yeah, yeah. This, the, the opportunity came up from, think about the industry, the, the wireless industry for the prepaid market early on in the stages of its life. You had to buy a card. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that. I remember,
3: I remember a little bit.
2: Yeah. yeah. So the, the scratch cards used to be the method of making a phone call. And that was minutes, right? You'd have that was minutes. Might. You apply them to a phone. You apply them to a long distance. And what was missing out of this equation is the to make it easier, to make it more safe, to transfer the actual product from the carrier down to the merchant location where the end customer gets it, and then getting it on the phone on the, on the customer level. So think about all the logistics that have to happen, the possibility of theft that could happen and and transfer over to the merchant location, the inventory that the merchant has to sit on for a long period of time. They have to always say, you know, I have it on hand. So the end customer walking in will have to be able to say, hey, I need this product. So what we were able to do is say, hey, you don't need to get those cards in the mail. You don't need to get physical inventory shipped from the carrier to your location. What we can do is facilitate the product in an electronic format. So early on, we had terminals that would sit behind the counter and the merchant or the clerk would actually run the process of uh, making a payment on that terminal, prints a receipt and the customer gets the product that gets still applied to the phone like by way of yeah, we're basically loading the the minutes on the phone and so forth. Our
0: sponsor is Waveform Music Group. Andy and Carlin have been working with us to take the production of Conquering Columbus to the next level, and Josh and I cannot be happier with the results. Outside of podcast production, Andy and Carlin are experts in songwriting, music production, and sonic branding for companies of all sizes. And to learn more about them, head to their website, createwaveforms.com. That is createwaveforms.com and tell them Conquering Columbus
3: sent you. You start off with that early stage technology, and it's all about eliminating, sitting on the inventory, streamlining the process of not having the cards in place, you're saying? And then you guys grew and evolved from there. Was there anything in the early days trying to land those customers where you guys thought like this might not make it?
2: The need was always there. We identified the customer early on in our stages of our uh, business.
3: And your customers are mainly like what, large providers, Verizon, T-Mobile?
2: So our vendors, what we'll talk about is our vendors and our customers. Our vendors are the carriers in the U.S. They they are in the prepaid wireless side of the business early on. Like Verizon is one of our vendors. And the customer is the underbank that you mentioned, the 84- million people that are in the U.S. that we serve today with our platform. And the underbanked, and the reason why they're called underbanked is because their access to the banking system is very limited, or their method of accessing it might be too expensive for them to actually do their business. To do the same functions that we would do as a normal business function, you know, like getting a loan, uh, running a credit card, making a payment for your cell phone, making a, a wallet payment for your transportation, for your CODA, so you can get on the bus. Those transactions are more expensive for the underbanked. So we give them a method to do the process with no fees. The transaction happens on our platform and it's built in, our cost is built in directly with the, uh, with the carrier that we get the, the product from.
3: So that makes a lot of sense. I'm still missing the piece of, and, and I'm probably just doing a bad job painting my brain, of, of when you initially started to how things kind of evolved over time. So as you look back over these 15 years, are there certain milestones or, or growth ev- evolution periods of the product you continue to evolve into where we're at today from a present day technology standpoint?
2: Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a good point. So if you think about what we have done over the last 15 years, you probably don't know that much yet. This is the first time we meet in person. So our goal was always to bridge the the digital divide between what the customer, the end customer needs are and how we can get it to them. All the products that we have on VidaPay are always connecting the digital divide and actually making that bridge and making it available for them as an end consumer. So over the years, VidaPay is the product that we service, which is called the life of payment in Spanish for life of payment. And uh, VitaPay is the product for t that the merchants use in the U.S. to, to do the transactions that the underbank the requires to do on a day-to-day basis. The product itself has always been to serve that customer. And if you think about it, over the years, we evolved the product offerings. So we looked for verticals that can fit in that product offering. So over the years, you're talking about transition over the years. So we talked about... Wireless products, airtime, handsets, activation. You can walk into one of our stores today in the U.S., which we have about 10,000 locations that we serve coast-to-coast today for all the locations that we have in the U.S. So you can walk in and just say, hey, I need to top up my account. I need to activate a new device. And within a couple of minutes, you can walk out with an active device and a wallet on your phone with airtime. It's all digital. Inventory is available at locations and so forth. So we looked for new verticals to apply the same principles to that would serve the same customer. and That's where we got into some of the newer uh, verticals that we're getting into. So
3: the way that I'm visualizing this in my brain, I tend to try to do this to wrap my head around business models. It's like we have this population that we're calling underbanked, and we have these series of products and services that they want access to like the normal individual. But because they don't have the typical banking and financial infrastructure of maybe some of the other people are more fortunate across U.S., Canada, all the customers you guys are servicing, you have to create these applications that facilitate the transactions to allow the underbank to reach the products and services. Correct, correct. And then over time, you started off very small, mainly on the loading minutes side of things with the cell phone carriers, and you really got to know your ideal customer profile and then evolved your products and services around all of the different areas that they were not able to successfully reach Yes, rather than just that single one.
2: Yeah, so VidaPay is the platform or the tools behind everything that we're talking about here. So yeah, over the years, it evolved. You know, we started in smaller demographics. Early on, it was only a handful of uh, locations that we were able to serve. And then we grew into 10,000 locations. And the company's still growing. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth at this point.
3: When you talk about 10,000 locations, that 10,000 brick and mortar with strictly your logo on there? Are you going in with partners?
2: Our typical merchant is like Mike's Wireless or Josh's Wireless or uh, a multi-branded store that has multi-brands of wireless carriers in the U.S. Under the same belt, mom and pop convenience stores. Those are our customers. Those are our merchants today. They're not T-Cetra or VitaPay owned, but VitaPay service that location. And we built partnerships with these locations into what we can say is a healthy ecosystem to serve the products to the end customer.
3: And as you started the company in the early days and you had this niche single product offering, did it catch fire rather quickly? Or did you, how, how quickly did growth happen from that zero to one phase?
2: Early on in the stages of our life as, as T-Cetra, we had the cyclical path of a product. We started saying there's demand some months, there's demands at the beginning of the month where people get paid, there's demands in the middle of the month where people got paid, and then there's demand when tax season is there. Over the life of the t products, what we realized is that the evolution into the underbank, being aware of what the product is that we have, has grown quite a bit. We have some carriers that made it very easy to cut the cord and, and say, no more bills. A month to month is okay. It's not like the old traditional way of saying, hey, it's just a disposable phone. It's not a disposable product anymore. It's actually mainstream. So the product itself is sticking around. And I think that's where it's our product became more, less cyclical than it was early on in our life cycles.
0: We're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our sponsors, the Burlett Family Foundation. The Burlett Family Foundation is committed to serving as a trusted partner and resource to organizations striving to improve our community here in Columbus. All right, let's get back to the episode.
3: So do you remember when you first hit like 10, 50, 100 employees, what those early days looked like?
2: Yeah, those, I still think t till today is a fun place to be. We have great team and our team is growing. We have hired recently top-notch individuals to help us grow from larger companies to help us grow into what we are, what we need to be. But early stages were were very dynamic, challenging. Early on, there was some times that you have very little sleep throughout the week and you end up saying, I need to stay up. I need to talk to a a database administrator. I need to talk to this merchant and see what the problem is. We need to figure out how to deal with problems as they come. The 10-15 uh, employees early on, where we knew everybody, everybody knew who we are, we were as uh, co-founders. And the um, neat thing about it is that we knew like first name, last name, birthdays, uh, everything about that person early on in the stages of of our you know employees life cycle. Today, when when we grow to like 170 employees, it's a little bit harder to remember everybody's birthday and. And I think that's where the challenge is, that we're trying to grow, but we're trying not to grow to the point you don't know everybody that's in your team. And I think that's still something that we're working on. Yeah, maintaining that culture. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because we're not a small company anymore. We're half a billion dollar in revenue a year. So that tells you that there's quite a bit of transaction base that is coming through us. The employees that we have, we're lucky to have dedicated employees that are there to also help us grow and help themselves grow in the process as well. And as a business, we're trying to still have that feeling of a um, flexible business model, but then have the organizational structure behind it to support it. I think that's a lot of the growth companies have that challenge over the over the years, or early on when they start maturing as a company.
3: And so we talked a little bit about the evolution of the products and services earlier. Approximately, and, and if I'm not using the right terminology for how you guys talk about it internally, feel free to check correct me on that. But how many products and services are we at present day for this? customer profile of the underbanked?
2: Well, we have quite a bit of the wireless carriers in the U.S. today. At any point in time, you can probably see about 20 to 30 carriers in the U.S. When we say carriers, it's not just carriers, direct carriers. There are also the sub-carriers like Ultramobile, uh, T-Mobile itself has offerings, the other providers that we do business with. Verizon is one of our customers, TrackPhone, uh, with all the name brands that they have, is one, uh, our, uh, our customers as well, our vendors. And uh, if you think about what other products we were able to grab over time and fit in that vertical, anything that you can think of that is a wallet base can probably fit into that ecosystem that can serve that end customer. So Amazon Cash is one of our vendors, and we, um, we, we can top up the account that you have with Amazon on our platform with cash. And then you, we transfer over to a cashless-based uh, uh, product, uh, to a wallet, basically, That gives you the ability to go and buy stuff, products with the wallet that you have from Amazon. So, and transportation is another one. So there's a big dynamics happening right now where we're adding products to, in in new verticals that can serve that location.
3: It's such a hard concept. Like maybe I'm slow, but it's such a hard concept for me to wrap my head around because I'm banked and have been banked for so long, right? So for, for me, like to identify the problem right now, is it rooted in, in the use of cash? Is that part of the struggle?
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's cash preferred. The The term is cash preferred. It is a different way of looking at things than somebody who's walking into a bank. But let's talk about when is the last time you went to a bank, right? We do everything electronically these days. Probably myself walking into a bank. I do banking all day long, but I, I don't walk into a bank anymore to take money out. To I probably don't have $20 on, on me cash right now. So the, the behavior of the, of the transaction is changing. So there is somewhat of a merge in the market today to say, hey, the underbanked really needs the services that you do online, but you need to facilitate for them to be able to transfer the cash into cashless to be able to do the products, to get the products that we offer. So that's why we're saying, uh, well, go to a, one of our locations and then you can add to your wallet, to your payment wallet, whatever you need. To process your transactions, including wireless, including Amazon Cash, including transportation. There's other avenues that are coming down our way as well.
3: Yeah, that, that made it much clearer for me. So if I think of a bank as a series of products and services, whether that's debt financing, credit, digitizing my cash into currency in my bank account that I can at the end use online... You guys are taking one piece, or have taken one piece of that, and done it across a variety of different mediums.
2: Yeah, the good thing is we have good partners. We have very solid partners, vendors, in, in our situation, that are helping us do this service and allowing us to do what we need to do to help the underbanked in our in our market.
3: Was there competition in the early days, and is there competition now?
2: Yeah, yeah. So competition was pretty uh, pretty heavy early on. I think things just got normalized over time, and what we realized is the The smaller companies that were early on in our ecosystem could not really hold their ground long term. They didn't have the vision. The good thing is we had, uh, we were, uh, till today, we're fully independent. We're bootstrapped early on. We funded ourselves. uh, And uh, I'm very proud of my partners and myself into doing this. Up to what point in
3: revenue? I I don't know if you can disclose that. You can keep it private if you want, but I'm curious. You know, the the bootstrapping aspect is so challenging, especially you don't hear about it ever today. Everybody jumps straight to raising capital. How long were you guys able to make it like that? We
2: are till today independent on ourselves. There's quite a bit of cash management that we had to do to figure out how to to grow this way. And that's one of the reasons that you don't see us. Like we didn't grow into a thousand employees overnight. We're at 170 employees. 30, 40 of them are actually traveling agents. They service different markets and we have customers. So the way we grew helped us grow organically than to keep borrowing from uh, venture capitals and so forth. We still keep investing in the business and that helps the business grow as it is.
3: What about the goals for the future? Like if, as we think about the underbanked and you just think about a perfect world scenario, I got to imagine that that population is shrinking day by day. But I mean, the population's growing. So maybe it's, maybe population is growing faster than the underbanked is shrinking. Do you guys see that market segment disappearing?
2: The underbanked is not necessarily going away. What we're seeing is that consumer behavior is changing. They still need the products that you're offering. Back to the point that you still need to offer the underbanked the services that you're getting as, as banked as well. So in some sense, we still see the demographics still continuing with the challenges. I think COVID did not help in the last couple of years. We realized that COVID sent people home. And this is one of the things that we worked with on during COVID times. We actually spun up a couple of new adventures to be able to help give back basically in our ecosystem. So but I think COVID is making it harder for the underbank to get products available uh, as much.
3: Yeah, I guess when you think about the whole Robin Hood phenomena that happened throughout yes, COVID. Yes. I mean, did you guys get involved in that in any aspect?
2: No. So what we ended up doing, COVID sent people home, right? Till today, we're, I think the 170 employees, we have about 10 of them that walk in the office and I'm one of them because I, I, you know, I just, that's the way I am. I just need to be in an ecosystem that I interact with people and so forth. But the, um, the rest of America went home. So think about what, what's going to happen with the one person that was getting hourly wage, we were lucky to know that we have philanthropy in Columbus, for example, that supports the underbanked. So we worked with uh, Tony Wells from the Wells Foundation, and we were, were able to design with him uh, neighborsofrelief.org. The platform is there to serve the underbanked with their need from staying home, uh, needing to pay their bill for wireless, needing to pay their rent if needed, their heat, their electric bill. So uh, what we did is we designed a system to do the crowdfunding without the fees. And really, the dollar that you donate through a Neighbors Relief is going directly to the needs of that person that is asking for help. So there's no middle person in the middle. So that's one of the things that we we actually saw the need for early on during COVID. And we went down that direction of helping back by giving that product a different direction to help the, and, and the, the underbank. So we were still giving back to the community in that sense.
3: What about the goals for the future? So you mentioned your co-founders. How many in total are there are you?
2: There are eight co-funders early on, and uh, three of us are managing partners. Some are investors, and um, we're still going this way.
3: And what are the goals for the future amongst, I mean, the three primary managing partners and I'm assuming are the ones in the thick of the day-to-day operations?
2: I think DeSatro has a, a long way to go still. The future is bright for sure. What we're looking for is to expand the product offerings and see where challenges are going to come in down the road. There's still a lot of products that we can help The underbanked get. There's still a lot of innovation that can happen in our industry. The path is not always clear. We we have to look for it as it evolves. One of the things that helped us over the years is that we stayed flexible with what the product needs to look like in the future. So we're able to design and redesign and redesign and then implement and then uh, do multiple iterations on the same product to be able to get it where it is today and then hopefully where it needs to be in the future.
3: And then what about, like, just from a personal aspect, understanding, I mean, to to bootstrap a company or whatever the appropriate way is to word how you did your cash management to half a billion dollars in revenue and 170 employees is... Feet very few will ever accomplish in mm-hmm. life, and it just had to be a tremendous amount of hard work and good decision making and falling up after or getting up after failure. How did you go through that over time? Like if you talk a little bit about your interactions with your co-founders, with their ups and downs, like what were your motivations along the way? Was it to build a company and have something that lasts, or has it been a monetary motivation? I
2: mean, no, I mean, we tell the truth it's been a journey and the journey's not over, we still believe that the product is there to serve a certain demographics in the market. We kept our common goal in building this company alive throughout the years. And I think that's where we still are today. And I think that the challenge is always with startups, not just with us, is that are we doing the right thing? Are we in the right direction? You need somebody to help you, guide you through the process. And quite a few times you ask yourself that throughout the cycles of every year you ask yourself. Are we in the right direction? And we still do it today. We hired a consulting company to help us reorganize our leadership. We're doing leadership training. We're doing education training. You know, one of the things about being in Columbus that is to the, our benefit is the tech credit offering that um, Jobs Ohio offer. We're retraining, retooling our employees with new skill sets that help them grow their skill sets and help us grow at the same time. We keep innovating ourselves, but we keep our mission together to grow as a company. You can't say it's not monetary. We definitely like to see the growth in the financial aspect of the company, but where our focus has been more into growing the product and the services to compete and to be able to accomplish what we wanted to get out of this company.
3: And do you guys look back and regret anything?
2: I don't think we can. You cannot regret things as a startup. You cannot regret them as a as a growth company. There's some things. There's sometimes that you can say. Hey, I wish I did this earlier. Like, you know, maybe a position that you hired later on in a cycle, if you would have had it maybe two, three years earlier, it would have changed things behavior. Like, it would have changed things to the better early on. But you have to do your best at that point in time and then really foresee the future as much as you can. The good thing is that we're very in tune to what the market needs are for our product. Our CEO is pretty pretty creative all the time, in tune with the product as well. And that helps us really see where the product needs to go in the future. So from a design point of view, from an implementation, we were able to reshape the product quite often to be able to make it fit what the need is.
3: And then just for your personal goals for the future, like, do you see yourself staying in Ohio the long-term as as the business continues to grow and maybe you find uh, a next chapter? Do you Think you'll go back Jordan, or will you stay in the U.S. forever? What are your long-term goals?
2: I love Columbus. I mean, I've I've, I've got I've gotten used to it. It's not just I'm not settling for Columbus. Um, there's a lot of opportunities in Columbus, Ohio in general, but Columbus really specifically. There's a lot of growth here. the The opportunities are there. There's a lot of assistance. Like I said earlier on, tech credit is one thing that I can mention that was really easy to capitalize on that was offered by the state of Ohio. But there's a lot of good opportunities for startups, for entrepreneurs to help start and grow companies in Columbus. The environment is welcoming, it's friendly, and we love it here.
3: Our last question we always wrap the show up with is centered around the theme on uh, Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. And always ask our guests, you know, what does that mean to you when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career?
2: Uh, I think you, if you're an entrepreneur at any point in time, the word uncomfortable becomes comfortable. I mean, really uncomfortable is the comfort zone because you're not doing things. I, if, from my point of view, and I, you know, I'm, I'm probably speaking on behalf of my other two managing partners as well, is that we don't know, you, you don't know why you're growing the company. Sometimes if you're doing the right thing, you know, you always question yourself and you're like, I need to work harder at this to figure out where things need to go. I need to redesign this process. It's not going to work this way. So, I think the challenge has always been to accept the uncomfortable into becoming the comfort zone. Like I said early on during stages where I remember like waking up at two o'clock in the morning and I already slept two hours. And the, I have to talk to somebody from the DBA team to make sure that the database and in, in tune for the beginning of the month when we had cycles, when we had certain aspects that need to be done early on. We're not at that stage anymore, but I, and I have enough people to say, hey, can you make sure that everything is working fine? But I, I, you cannot say somebody showed, me, showed us the way throughout the process. We're lucky to know certain individuals that are in larger companies, in a growth company to help us in some aspects. But you, overall, as a business, the uncomfort is, is always there. Do you have enough cash? Do you have enough uh, time in the day to do what you need to do? Do you have enough resources? Do you have enough talent? How am I going to get new talent to join us and and do the things that you want to do? Right. So I think uncomfortable is not, is a word that is very comfortable for me.
3: It's a great answer, Gus. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for spending some time. No, thank you. And uh, great hearing about T. Cetra and your story. Any final remarks before we part ways?
2: Uh, one last thing I wanted to mention is the one thing that we spun off, I would say within the last year, is the uh, T. Cetra Foundation. What we're doing there is we're, through philanthropy, we're, we're given donations and grants to organizations that support the digital divide gap in the underbanked market. So we're actually not just doing the business, we're giving back, uh, in some sense, to some of the industries that support the bridge in the d- digital divide in that environment. So uh, Decentra Foundation is actually part of the organization's behavior. It's in our DNA now, and we're going forward with that.
3: Somebody listening wants to learn more about that. Where can they find information?
2: So the uh, tcentrafoundation.org is our uh, website. And uh, you can learn about it and apply for a grant if you need to, if you're part of the organization that supports it.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.